Macarion to Stokes, who's onside. Wide out. Here's Sims to put Stokes this from Southampton. They could finish the job here. It's Shane Long, and he has done it. Just a minute to play. That's stoppage time. Here's Letizia. Welcome to another, not just another, but episode 46 of the Saints SC podcast. We have been doing this for a long time, haven't we, Tom? How are you today? I'm amazed we've been doing this so long, but I'm good, John. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very well. Um, you know, I've, I've not let Saints performances or, you know, clutching draws from the uh, jaws of victory uh, get get me down. Yeah. Um, of course, ladies and gentlemen, if you've accidentally stumbled upon this, you're listening to the Saints FC podcast. Uh, we're delighted to have you listening to us. If you would like to get in contact with the podcast, the best way to do that is either through Twitter at Saints FC podcast or you can email us saintsfcpodcast at gmail.com. Since the last time uh, we put one of these out, we've had a 2-2 draw at home with Brighton a 3-0 loss um, at the hands of Liverpool. Um, there's been all sorts of talk and conjecture about how Saints are doing, what our prospects for the season are. Um, Tom, I'm just going to start with the draw uh, with Brighton. Do you, what, 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 what's, your, uh, what's your take on that? It's the hope that kills you, isn't it? Uh, it's, um, it was kind of horribly inevitable, I think. The frustrating thing is Saints played so well, didn't they? That first half, like, it was proper Kuman style or even, like, Pochettino style, like, flying out the blocks. Players everywhere across the pitch, you know. Lamina, brilliant. Even when he did his typical Lamina thing and lost the ball, he'd win it back. Hoiberg snapping into everything. Um, Redmond looked brilliant. The first 45 minutes were phenomenal, but we're only 1-0 up. And then... You know, what's interesting is we kind of we kind of like panic when Brighton just change their formation just ever so slightly and put the emphasis more on attack and we just kind of completely lose our way. Um and then obviously we go 2-0 up and it all goes wrong from there, John. I know. Um I what what's the best way to deal with this? Do we start off with do, do, well, I don't know. Should we get the negatives out of the way and then let's 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 go through the match in reverse and then we can finish on Pierre Emil Hoiberg's wonder goal, um, which which would be you know maybe a more fun way to talk about it. Um, in which case, should we start with the the Brighton penalty in the last minute of injury time of stoppage time? Um, you know what. <laughs> We have James Ward-Prowse um, in the box, you know, big, strong James Ward-Prowse, you know, yeah. clumsy, the kind of guy that would give away a penalty. I mean, what happened there? It, it, I mean, I, was, I, I went with my brother and his girlfriend, so we went in the chapel end rather than the northern. We wanted to keep things relatively civil. Um, 
So I didn't have the best view of the incident, but watching at home, you probably saw a couple of replays. I had a few people messaging me saying they didn't think it was a penalty or that it was quite a weak penalty. Um, From where I was standing, it just looked like James Ward-Prowse bundled into the guy and the guy fell over and the penalty was given. I mean, it it probably was definitely one of the softer penalties um, you're going to see. There wasn't much in it. But again, it, it comes down to something that we spoke about this loads last season. It's about intelligence, isn't it? Football intelligence, if there is such a thing. And what Saints do and what Saints did at that moment, what James Ward-Prowse did at that moment, is he gave the referee a decision to make um, and the referee took it. And it it was a bizarre thing for James Ward-Prowse to do. A, I question why James is on the pitch. Um, I know Romeo wasn't on the bench, but, you know, we were... Palace away and when we were needing to shore up that win Romeo came on and he was brilliant he yeah. did exactly that and I think he is definitely more defensively able there's no doubt about that than, than JWP so but why give the referee a decision to make and again it's I wonder if um, and this is a silly thing to say because they've got to be better than this but like we need to do almost everything in the last seconds of the game not to be kicking down that end you know it's the same like, I wonder if there's something about the away fans getting raucous, you know, happening as Leicester, uh, it's happening as Brighton. And like the Saints need to almost like we, you know, they want to be facing into the away fans mm. in the second. I don't know. It can't be that sen- It can't be that simple. But why did he give him the decisions, mate? And also, what's James Ward Proud doing near Duffy? He's a man mountain. I, it is weird that, that James Ward Proud is marking Duffy in the first instance he, he probably wasn't marking it was probably zonal marking and that was just oh. in, in his zone all right we'll, we'll get on to zonal marking later I think Tom because there's got to be a whole talk about our defensive tactics and what's kind of causing this um but yeah interesting if we kind of like then rewind game in reverse chronological order of, of this game the substitutions were bizarre weren't they I mean James Will Prowse and Stephen Davis coming on to shore up a game it just makes no sense but then one of the complaints I've heard is, well, we had Brighton on the ropes. Why don't we just go in for the kill? And one of the wonderful things about when we did have Ronald Koeman as manager, he was never really about shoring up games, was he? He was always, you know, as soon as you had someone in the ropes, you go in for the kill. Um, and, you know, that, that was the kind of way how we saw out lots of games. We didn't allow teams to get back into it. Whereas now, when we get the lead, it's almost like so important we're desperate to hold on to it and therefore the desperation means that we're less likely to hold on to it but yeah the substitutions are bizarre I just I couldn't figure them out at the time I still haven't figured them out since I I mean I love Stephen Davis Uh, my falling out I love James Will Prowse a little bit and I hate to criticise Saints players but I just don't think Saints is the I think for his career maybe he needs to find something else Um, but yeah I completely agree with you I don't quite I can't even remember who really was on the bench um but I don't know where Romeo was on the bench. Um, it, it just seemed to me bizarre substitutions because Stephen Davis is, is you know fantastic technical player, but he's not a defend, defensive-minded player. Uh, James Ward-Prowse is definitely not a defensive-minded player. So I don't quite know what the game plan was. Um, and, you know, and, and it just invited... It just invited Brighton onto us. And Saints, and I think we're going to come on to talk about this, like psychologically, there is a problem mm. at Southampton Football Club uh, when they are winning games. I think it's 14 points from 14 games. I think Mark Hughes has, has dropped as Saints manager from winning positions. Um, if we could maintain leads in even 
two thirds of the games we were winning, all this talk about Saints being in trouble would evaporate. We just can't psychologically hold on to points. And it is, again, just an absolute baffling thing. You know, these are professional footballers playing in the highest standard league on the planet. And why, you know, why can they not be coached to win a game? You know, like it's a, it's a real issue. And I just, it baffles me. I mean, it is totally baffling, but then it's the same stuff which happens over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and is it defensive frailty? Is it that we don't have power and strength and height in the box? Well, no, because now we've got Vestergaard in there. We've got Wesley Hoot in there. Two, by average height, what we've got probably easily the biggest centre-back pairing in the Premier League. Yeah, and so so it's not that. It's not the strength. It's not the height. Maybe it's the the awareness. Maybe the tactics are wrong. Maybe there's something about the players not understanding zonal marking, although that... I can't, I just, I cannot believe. I mean, these players must have been playing zonal marking since they were 10 years old. It's not um, a new thing. Yet, players like Shane Duffy and Glenn Murray, um, big centre forwards, we just can't, just can't deal with them. And that Shane Duffy's goal from the Brighton free kick, which was what, just inside our half, looped into the box. And I mean, is, is McCarthy a little bit to blame for this? Is it the defence? I mean, who, who's. Should we be looking for someone to blame? Because when you look at the goal, it's a really odd goal to give away. It yeah. seems seems very rudimentary. That yeah. are we pointing the finger of blame at someone? Well, the finger of blame has to go at someone, right? It's someone's job. Someone's highly paid job is to prevent that happening. Whether that's Vestergaard as the sort of leading as the sort of alpha male centre back, where it's McCarthy as the goalkeeper who's setting his defence up in front of him whether it's Bertrand as the captain, whether it's Mark Hughes as the manager, whether it's the coaches, someone is to blame for it. Um, this isn't a, a ricochet shot. You know, this is not Harry Maguire's goal. Mm. This is like 101 football, as I, you know, as I imagine if you're a Premier League footballer. And what I don't understand is we play a really high line, which is an interesting thing to do against you know, a team of, uh, A, we don't have a giant goalkeeper, and B, you know, we know that Brighton are a very physical, very big team that like crossing the ball in the box. So we play a high line, we invite a, a good cross into the box and we basically say, come on then, we're going to stop you scoring a goal. And we can't, you know, we, we don't do that from crosses. We don't stop teams scoring goals. So I don't understand that either. You know, at that that ball seems to me that McCarthy has to come and get it. He has to claim that. And, you know, Fraser Forster had his critics, but he often, when he came for those balls and he smashed through people, he would get them. And he, I don't understand it. I don't understand. I don't understand. They just paralyzed again. Yeah. And I wonder as well, if it's the thing about losing concentration it happened, what two minutes after we'd gone two nil in the lead with uh, Danny Ings penalty. And it happens so frequently that when you score a goal, you immediately concede one because players have lost their focus or something. Or we've suddenly gone back to the halfway line. The, the momentum of the game has suddenly changed. Um, but I think, you know, the two goals that we conceded both seem to have more about what's going on in the players' heads and minds than anything to do with their ability or tactics. Or I mean, well, maybe the tactics were at fault for the first Bryson goal for Shane Duffy's one, but... 
I mean, what, what, what? It's got to be up here. It's like, it, it can't be anywhere else. Like, they're not bad footballers. Like, look, we've got a Dutch international centre back. We've got a Danish international centre back. We've got a keeper who's in the English squad. We've got an England international left back. We've got a European Cup, a European Championship winning right back. Like, it's got to be in their heads. And I'm kind of, you're running out of excuses, aren't you, now, for this group of players? Like, it, it does drive me mad. And I, you wonder, like, what have they got to do? And the problem is, like, the team they put out, that's their best, that's the, that's the best 11, I think. You know, so what are they going to do? I mean, this is almost where you need, like, just to get someone like, I don't know, a Tony Pulis in just for a couple of weeks, just to drill them over and over and over and over again, you know, facing up to a 100 set pieces at the end of training until they've cleared every single one of them. I mean, uh, it's strange. I mean, I, I don't I don't anticipate it could be that basic because that seems so bleedingly obvious that, okay, we're not very good at defending set pieces. We're not very good at defending crosses. Therefore, just drill it, drill it, drill it, drill it, drill it until every player knows exactly what they're doing, exactly what zone they should be marking, knowing exactly when to react to the ball. I mean, I, I thought um, Matip's goal against Liverpool... Vestergaard looked like he reacted to it about half a second too late. If you watch on the highlights, obviously you wouldn't be able to see this in the stadium when it happens, but you can kind of see like the moment when his mind switches on and he suddenly realises he needs to be marking that player. And it, it, it's too late by then. Matip's got the space and he, and he heads it in. Um, I'd just say on that point, I mean, Matip's a centre-back. Like, football, like most basic thing of football is like, they're going to, like, insane to do it. You're going to hit the centre-backs as set-pieces because they're the biggest men on the pitch, generally. They're the biggest men on the pitch, they're the strongest, and they're often very good with their head. So why are we switching off? Shane Duffy is a centre-back. Like, How are we switching off on centre-backs as set-pieces? You know that's where the ball's going to go. And I think there's a broader thing about the Brian game. You know, This isn't Man City. This isn't Spurs. This is a team that, as I, I think, as I heard on the night, they have come back from 2-0 down in the Premier League away from home like four times three times you know once was the week before against Fulham like this is a team that when they are 2-0 down away from home they are dead mm. you know they are they are they are as finished as anyone's ever going to be and we psychologically lost that battle against that team that that never do anything at 2-0 down and i think kind of probably the reason for that is how quickly they got there their goal back once they were 2-0 down because there was never any time for them to ease into the fact of, oh no, we've lost this game because we let them straight back into it. Which means now, on our reverse, it's all going to get better from now, Tom. Um, we had the Danny Ings uh, penalty. Now, it's quite interesting because I was in the chapel and as I mentioned earlier, Danny Ings won the penalty, the foul was on him. Now, quite often, like statistically, a striker... Um, is much more high, much higher chance of missing a penalty if they were the person to win the penalty. Um, yeah, exactly like that. Exactly like Charlie Austin against Paris. So quite often it's better to have another player that wasn't involved in the incident to take the penalty. So when Danny Ng stepped up, I was feeling pretty nervous knowing what our result, uh, what normally happens with Saints players when they take penalties these days. And uh, I was delighted when he put it away. I mean, and great. That's another goal for Danny Ings. His scoring record is looking really, really fantastic. And I know penalties not necessarily something to get really excited about, but he won the penalty. He was there. He put it away. Saints by putting away a penalty. That's a great, great thing to see, isn't it? And also he wasn't having probably, and he would probably, it's his best game. 
probably at that point. So to dust himself down and exactly like say take the responsibility, you know, he hadn't scored at home for Saints and he'd said about he wanted to score his goal at St Mary's. You know, there's a lot of responsibility there and also like he knows that it's one nil is a, you know, this is a really important penalty to score. Um so yeah, hats off to him. It was a really good penalty. And I think before you know, if you look at the run up to penalty, really well played by Cedric to kind of ghost in between a couple of players and put the ball into a dangerous area. Yeah, and it, it actually was a little bit against the run of play at that point. I thought. I thought we'd, you know, we'd done really well in the first half. Second half, um, Brighton were definitely back into the game, and so to go two 0 up felt really amazing. Um, so let's go back a little bit further in time, and at the end of that first half, I was absolutely delighted. We've been playing really well. Brighton, I think, had had one half chance, like practically nothing, and we had had that absolute wonder strike for Pierre-Emil Hoiberg. There we go. Now we get to talk about Pierre-Emil Hoiberg's strike. I feel very fortunate because I was at St Mary's in the chapel, which means I had the view from behind Pierre-Emil Hoiberg putting it in. But I was sat in pretty much the same place when Cuco Martinez scored his goal against Arsenal, Tom, which almost exactly the same point in the pitch. Who's your favourite? Is it Cuco's goal? Is it Hoiberg's goal? Um... And I've got a view on this, but I want to hear your view first. I think technically better is Kuko's goal because from memory, like wasn't Kuko's like on a slight half volley and it also might be just a trick of the angle, but Kuko's goal does seem to swing further out before it swings back. So like technically it's a better goal. But also with Kuko, you always be like, who's this? He was a bit like Ali Dia. You always thought he was a bit of an imposter. Um, whereas Hoiberg, we love him. Uh, so we wanted to see him score that goal. So for me, like my head says Kuko, but my heart says Pierre. So, I mean, I'm going to choose Pierre and Hoiberg's goal on the technical ability for it. So, I mean, basically the same point, but slightly different view on it. So Kuko's, the ball was coming out to him. It was bouncing. He struck it kind of off, you know, it was off the ground when he struck it, but it was kind of a wild smash at it. And yes, it did curve a lot and it looked absolutely sensational and it obviously was what he was trying. But I think you could present Kuko with that ball a thousand times and he would literally do it the once. And he just happened to be against Arsenal in that game on Boxing Day. Whereas Pierre-Emil Hoiberg, the ball comes out to it and he kind of like controls it and pushes it out in front of him and he strikes it and he hits it and it goes like an absolute rocket and then just curves a little bit at the end just to go inside the post. It was just, and I think if you gave Pierre Hoiberg that shot a thousand times, he'd probably score a hundred of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, Kuko's goal was just wild and just totally unbelievable. Yeah. But actually, I think, I think technically Pierre Hoiberg's was, there was more technique in his. I think Kuko had a kind of lucky swipe. Um, but it was, it was wonderful to see it go in and, you know, I mean, that's why you go and watch Saints, basically. The, or you go and watch football is for these moments like that. Yeah, it was, it was a great goal. And also, he seems like a great bloke, doesn't he? He seems like actually someone that Saints fans, you know, after probably a bit of a time of not being able to relate to footballers, I think uh, Pierre-Emile seems like a bloke that most Saints fans would get along with. He seems to care. I also think quite tellingly when, you know, after the Brighton game, he's the one that, the management team and the PR team wheel out because I think that they know he uh, he has that ability maybe to connect with the fan base. It was a great goal. And also what was really good about the, ball, about the goal as well was the um, the challenge from Lamina beforehand because I think from memory Lamina kind of 
loses the ball and then like monster like whoever tackles him Lamina gets back up and monsters him and then passes it so it was like I, I really feel their midfield thing is a, is a great thing for Saints right now despite you know results maybe not going our way so yeah it was a really good goal it's a nice little bromance in the middle of the park between the guy with the worst dress sense and the guy with the worst tattoos <laughs> yeah um, it's funny actually like uh, my little boy He's got some uh, fake transfers on his arm at the moment. I swear they could be the same sort of things that Pierre Hoiberg has on his arms. But I mean, it was an absolutely splendid goal. And, you know, when you look at the match in reverse, if it had, if it had gone like that, if Brighton had gone 2-0 up and then we'd come back and then the goal to draw it was Pierre Hoiberg's, we'd be looking back at that re- result going, oh, you know, OK, so we were down and a draw at home at Brighton is obviously not what you want. But... I mean, what a, what a goal to see, you know, good performance. And actually, if you play the game in reverse, it's much better than if you play it, <laughs> play it forwards, um, which I know has all, all the frailties that we've talked about. But, I mean, for a Monday night game, the atmosphere is, was good. Um, they had the kind of like fireworks display in the stadium beforehand. I missed it because I only ever show up about 30 seconds before kickoff, um, no matter whether I'm trying to do that or not. But there was a buzz. And actually, when you walked into the stands, there was that kind of like fireworks smoke, which kind of created that atmosphere like he had gone to a European game where they had the kind of like firecrackers and flares and stuff. And it, it did help the atmosphere on a Monday night, which is quite a difficult game to get fans out to. Yeah, it's funny. Saints getting a lot of stick at the moment. Um, yeah, I, yeah I'm not, I've been partial to that a little bit. Um, you yeah, know, one of the things we're getting stick for is this fireworks thing. And I don't know if we're going to come to this later about whether the club have kind of lost sight of what's important. Um, but if you look at it, you know, Southampton is not, uh, you know, it's not, you know, they've got to get people in that ground on a Monday night, haven't they? The game's on Sky, so anyone can watch it either illegally or just nipping out of the pub and having a pint. So they need to get 30,000 people in that stadium. And, you know, a lot of people don't like it. You know, people don't like music when we score. Like, I hate that clapping thing you know that people do when it's a corner like dum, dum, dum. I hate that more than anything uh, but that's the modern world isn't it and we have to get on with it I quite like the clapping thing at the corners yeah but it's it's been going on for a long while and also so the the, 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 the on clapping if anyone can tell us I think it's actually made the quality of free kicks and corners worse so I don't know if there's anyone who can look into that at all but as my gut instinct I think this is a challenge for Duncan Alexander. Tom, can you tweet him now and, and find out about that? Like, if they're, they're clapping and the build-up to free kicks. Um, I think he's at Oily Sailor. We'll have to try and get him back onto the podcast. He, he gave quite a good insight. Um, it's funny, though, as well, because the other thing that people have been banging on about is the, the kind of clackers, the cardboard-like things that you slap and they make a lot of noise. In the northern end, they're totally pointless. But actually, in the chapel end which is pretty kind of notoriously quiet, it did help the atmosphere. I, I, or at least I felt it helped the, helped the atmosphere in the Chapland where we don't tend to be as noisy as, as we are in the northern end. Um, I do think because we're talking about fireworks, stuff like this, we should go on to have Saints lost their way or lost sight of the important things, which, I mean, I don't know, Tom, for you, what are the important things? What are the things that Saints should be focusing on? winning above all like it's ridiculous it's obvious isn't it but it has to be about winning and if it's not about winning it has to be the other thing which i think southampton fans love more than not winning 
not 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 love more than not winning, but you know, he's the second best thing they love, which is bringing young players through. And on both counts, we ain't really seeing much of that right now. But to be fair to the kind of social media team and stadium experience team or whatever they they have, that's not their role. They have no control over that. That's Mark Hughes who has to get the team winning and has to you know kind of actually bleed young players through. Um, Interestingly, after the Brighton game, they sent around this fan survey about atmosphere. And it was all these, it was like this survey and had loads and loads of questions. That my response was, because I understand, you know, obviously winning is going to get a better atmosphere, bringing young players through, that's also going to be exciting. But in terms of what are the periphery things that a club can do to improve the atmosphere? And for me, the answers which I put in repeatedly into the survey were lower ticket prices and safe standing. I actually think if you had a safe standing section, four to 5,000 standing places that were 20 quid a ticket, you would vastly improve the atmosphere. St. Mary's, I think, would have a more kind of fearsome effect. And it might actually have a positive effect on the team as well. I mean, what do you think about that? Am I just being ludicrous? No, I don't, I don't think you are. I mean, I like to, when I go to St. Mary's, I like to sit uh the north by the by the away fans it definitely for me it's the best atmosphere in the ground and yeah for obvious reasons that's probably not where they would have the standing zone because it's close to the away fans but yeah i like what palace have done like palace have kind of you know when you go to palace and it is a great day as an away fan they've got those ultras Mm. and they're a great atmosphere they they really lift they 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 really give the place a lift so yeah i i agree with you i think that you know saints we spoke about it many times before. Saints have disproportionately high ticket prices for the quality of the football and the results that they receive. I think it was something like the fifth or sixth highest season ticket price in the league. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, Saints need Saints need to do something to get the fans back on side if they're not winning games. And but they can't just lower ticket prices all of a sudden. I, but yeah, I, I don't know quite what it is, and they can't obviously introduce unilaterally standing. So I, I'm not just win some bloody games. Well, the the funny thing is with the ticket prices, I don't know if you saw that like cost of football survey or well, the BBC ran a report and there's about 10 clubs in the Premier League that could make a profit if they played every single game in front of an empty stadium because their ticket prices, their ticket sales don't have that much of an impact on their bottom line. And, and Saints, Saints were right at the top of that. Yeah. So, I mean, the club could afford definitely to reduce the ticket sales. If they reduced it to 20 quid uh, a ticket, which is the same price that the away fans pay to come to St. Mary's, which is maybe why they always have a good, you know, a good following, a great day out. We give away leads to them and everything. But, but you know, how, how hard would it be for Saints to do that? I, I have one theory as to why they wouldn't do it. And that is they're worried about if we went to the championship and ticket sales did become important to the club. It's very difficult to put the prices up from 20 quid a ticket to over 30 quid a ticket, which the money that they now need playing in the championship. That's a very astute analysis, and maybe that is the, the mindset. But again, doesn't that kind of tell you something about Saints, um, that, the, that they genuinely fear relegation? Like, And if you wonder, does that atmosphere, does that thought process kind of creep into other aspects of the football club um you know if they like i can't imagine under kuman or under pochettino that they were thinking about that you know that they were thinking about really that, that obviously it was a possibility but that's probably not what they were planning for 
And I do wonder with Saints, um, you know, whether now they've got, again, it goes down to a negative mentality. And are we seeing this sort of, you know, creeping tide of pessimism sweep through the club? And, and you know, what impact is it having? I mean, is it the reason why we're not seeing young players? Because we, we can't risk giving a young player the chance. Is it why we can't close games out? You know, this is all guesswork, but it does kind of make sense. It's like we're scared as a club. Yeah. And the, and that whole atmosphere is is around the club, and that means that yeah, you're, you're right. It's and it's it's kind of a it's almost like a feedback loop, isn't it? You know, they talk about climate change. Once things go past a certain level, then it all feeds back, and you have a feedback loop, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And we've kind of got that with Saints. You know, we're we're the Southampton are planet Earth careering towards like rising sea levels, melting permafrosts, and it is you know that negative attitude to the. The fact that we're scared about relegation means that we're not bleeding through the young players, which means we're not getting amazing talent through for free. Um, not kind of, again, make, getting big transfer fees from the fact that we're bleeding through this talent through. The fact that the first team players are not on their toes because they're, they're not worried about the young players coming through. Um, you know, the fact that like when we go out and we take a two goal lead against Brighton, we're not playing with a freedom and being able to enjoy ourselves because like, oh my God, we have to hold on to this lead. And, and, and you're probably right, but maybe actually reducing the ticket prices, bringing a bit of atmosphere in there, bringing a bit of fun into the same, which I think the fireworks did do to a certain element, um, could maybe help lift the place and lift the players. And, and maybe the stadium wouldn't get on their backs if people were there having a nice time, they had 10 extra square, ten extra quid in their pocket to spend on beers in the ground and made a bit more noise as a result. Yeah, I, I do agree. But fundamentally, like uh, the Saints' home record is horrific. What, is it something like three home wins in this calendar year? And we are now nearly in October. Um, it's a horrible record. Um, you know, what are we now? We're six games into the season. We've not won a home game. Um you know, our home record is, is atrocious. So um, that's what matters. You know, ultimately, if, if they if Saints gave their fans, and I think Johnson took this now, if Saints gave their fans six more, you know, if, they, if they'd given the home fans 10, 10 home wins this season, this, this calendar year, things would be a lot different. But, yeah. I think it's actually worse than, than you thought, Tom, because... We beat Bournemouth at home. Yeah. I think that's the only game we've won at home in 2018. Like genuinely, we beat Swansea, that was away. We beat West Brom, that was away. And before that, you have to go all the way back to November when we beat Everton 4-1. So that's two. So is that, how many, but in, in 2018, how many games, no, sorry, 20. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think, yeah, it's probably two, three games, maybe. No, two games, maybe. One game. No, Bournemouth and... We've won one home game this calendar year. That can't be right. What about um, Everton? Was that, I know Everton was November last year because I just got engaged. Wow. Ouch. Saints, sort it out. That's what you need to do to improve the atmosphere. Win some effing games at home. They should pay the fans to go. Oh, I know. Astonishing, isn't it? Right. Where do we go from here? I mean, we've talked about Saints dropping points from winning positions. We've talked about last-minute goals and always conceding them. Injury time winners. 
Do we do we now head to Liverpool and talk about that game? I don't think it'll take long to cover that one off. It was, um, I was actually in the barber, because I don't know if I'm watching this, because I've got a Turkish barber and they stream the games. It's very good. Um, uh, and, you know, the sad thing was, like, I thought it was the first 20 minutes, Saints didn't actually play that bad. Like, Liverpool did that thing where they ravage you, you know, where like, they just stream forward and all of a sudden each player divides into four other players all faster than the other one and they swarm you. Um, but Saints actually did all right. And then, you know, I guess you kind of feel a bit sorry for Mark Hughes as well because he sets that team up. You know, Matt Target played really well from what, you know, from what I've seen, but the Saints played well. Then Hoyt does his, you know, did a sort of clumsy Hoyt thing and then that was that and the heads just went down and yeah, I don't know if, what much else there is to say. When, when you look back at the highlights of the game, all the goals really, they had elements of misfortune to them. And it's interesting about you saying that Saints played okay, because actually if you compare Saints' first half performance against Liverpool to, say, Brighton's performance against Saints, Saints probably played better against Liverpool than Brighton did against Saints in the first half. Um, and we had chances. Vestergaard had a header chance, you know, pretty similar to Matip's. The difference was Matip's went in, Vestergaard's didn't. Um, Pierre-Emile cannot hit a volley, unfortunately, as well as Cuco Martina. Um, you know, he totally scuffed his chance. And that's playing with a 4-5-1. And then the three goals are all fairly fast. I mean, the, the first one was just a bizarre... It's the kind of thing that you see on that brilliant Twitter feed, Crap 90s Football, which uh, Saints Defending Against West Ham featured on in, in this week. Amazing. It was like something out of, like, you've been framed. Like, blokes hitting each other, people falling over, like... Just ridiculous goals. Really worth watching. Yeah, that's that's crap 90s football. De- definitely search for that on Twitter. It's, it's well worth a chuckle. And, you know, somewhat reassuring actually watching the Saints team that I loved in the 90s being so farcical. Um, but yeah, he had that kind of like weird farcical kind of goal. I mean, we've talked about Matip's header already earlier in the show, which was just kind of bad defending. And I think most days Vestergaard would have realised the threat sooner and would would have probably have dealt with it. And then obviously the third one was a rebound off the bar from, um, you know, Shakiri's free kick. And, you know, we didn't react quick enough to it and Salah got there first. But the, the game was over at half time and Liverpool gave up at half time. So I don't think we can really say, oh, you know, well done. We kept a clean sheet in the second half, which is kind of what Hughes tried to do in his post-match interview. But I mean, if, if we'd beaten Brighton, we wouldn't have cared about this result at all. And perhaps we shouldn't care about it. I think that if we, I think you're exactly right. Like if we go and beat Brighton 2-0, 2-1, like it's almost like the Everton game, isn't it? Start of the season, we went away to Everton, we lost two one. No one panics because that's just what we do. Like, if we, I think Liverpool are probably going to win if they play what eighteen home games this season, whatever it is, nineteen home games. I'll be amazed if they don't win fifteen of them. And of that fifteen, they're probably going to win ten by at least three goals. They're animals, and they've got the best front three probably in European football. So losing three 0 is no great shame. But I think you're right. It's the it's the cumulative effect. And also we, we're doing, the season is sort of terrifyingly reminiscent of last season where our easier, when we say easier games are front loaded at the start and now we, we go into a difficult run of games um, where, you know, right, realistically, like Saints should, like if you look at it on paper, Saints could have, 
Start of the season. Should have been Burnley. Should have could have been Leicester. Beat Palace. Uh could have been Brighton. We should have twelve like realistically, like we could have twelve points and lost two, and then we could go, right, got some difficult games now, we can ride it out. Instead now we go into it by the time we hit Christmas, and I, I'm more positive than a lot of people, but by, by the time we hit Christmas, we could be in some deep doggy doo-doo. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The BBC ran a um, kind of a, uh, an article comparing how teams were doing to basically the same fixtures that they'd had last season. And Saints basically doing exactly the same. So... Um, from the from the same fixtures that we had, we've had basically exactly the same results. So we, we've not improved this season at all from last season. And last season was a terrifying experience. Are we better than last season, though, Tom? Is yeah, yeah, I do. I, this is the mad thing. Like the Brighton first half of football. I know Brighton were terrible, but I, by God, that was enjoyable, wasn't it? As a Saints fan, like people like smashing into people everywhere like a real sense of purpose a real sense of drive again like big shout out nathan redmond like whatever he did in the summer is an inspiration and you know let's get charlie austin doing it this you know this next coming summer because like nathan redmond looks like a man transformed and and again he just needs a goal i hope something goes in for him because i think he will fly um yeah like so much so much better than last season. Like real attacking football at points. You know, they they were really good against Palace as well, Saints. But yeah, it's just it's mentally, isn't it? And if you look at that table now, fourteenth and it's not pretty reading, is it? No, it's not. I mean there are still three teams out there that haven't even got a victory yet. So like Newcastle, Cardiff and Huddersfield. But again, I mean, is this going to be like last season where we're actually just going to be looking at other teams to be worse than us rather than us being better than other teams, which I, I think it's a shame because we have got all these internationals in the squad. You know, we, we know that saints can be decent and it's just so upsetting to, to see this happen. Um, we've not got a particularly great run of fixtures coming up either. I mean, I don't know if you've been studying the fixture list, but obviously we've got wolves away next which we'll come on to and do a little bit of slightly more in-depth. We've got the EFL Cup to Everton, so I think we can you know, forget, forget uh, <laughs> carrying on in the EFL Cup. Then we have Chelsea at home, Bournemouth away, who up until this weekend have been looking really, really good. And then probably the next chance that we've got for of, you know, a reasonably good chance of getting a, a win in the Premier League is going to be 27th of October against Newcastle. Um, Six point at that one. I mean that it's crazy that that is like that's looking like a six pointer at the end of October. Saints are home to Newcastle. Newcastle look pretty dire, don't they, at the start of this season? Um, yeah, like I it's it's almost like which Saints is going to turn up. But the problem is, is even the Saints that play well can't win. You know they struggle to win. So we either go somewhere and get totally turned over like we did at Liverpool or we go, we go and we play really well like we did for, I don't know, probably 55 minutes of the game against, uh, against Brighton and we still don't win. So it is alarming. 
It is alarming, and, and this weekend against Wolves is a is a banana skin. Yeah, I, I think we're going to do some listener emails before we get on to Wolves. Um, so, this first email. Hi, John, Tom, and friends. Hi, Paul as well. I've been listening to Saints FC podcast for about nine months now and are loving your work. Yeah. The theme tune used to drive me mad, but now I know it's John's own work from his days as a top DJ. I'm starting to love it. Very, very generous. Two things for me. First, a song for Danny Ings. Tom, how are those vocal cords doing? Aww. Yes. So Tom's doing some kind of like uh, vocal warm-ups. Um, have we got a tune for this? I, I don't think we have. So you're just going to have to freestyle it, oh, Tom. No. But can, can you read that? I can read that. Um, thanks for the lack of tune. Very helpful. Um, okay, let me just get this. Um, who? This is a bit weird. It's like a carol. Uh, who's that man born in Eastleigh? Who's that man we all adore? Danny Ings is his name. and He scores a goal a game. Now we don't need a striker anymore. Repeat. Whoa, that man born in Eastleigh. Yeah, I mean, that, that could work. It's quite complicated for a football chant, isn't it? Yeah. I was wondering, do you think this is a bit of a throwback to the, you know, the fast show when he used to do, and his mate that used to try and do that, said, who's that girl? Who's that man born in Eastleigh? I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, we've got another point here from, from Chris from Bristol in his email. So secondly, Saints right side. If we look at our left side, I'm pretty confident Bertie is solid and looks motivated and Redmond is on his journey of rediscovery. My issue lies on our right side, Cedric. Ah, uh, Cedric. If you look at the total number, we can see, thanks to his poor defending, usually at the back post of any headers, it has to hugely over-index against nearly any other right back in the league. He hasn't corroborated this with any facts, so this speculation at this point. But, you know, we're probably with you on that. I take your point that centre-backs have to take some of the blame, but the man failing to do his job in the one-on-one... But he is the man failing to do his job in the one-on-one defending. His get-out-of-jail card is, but he's great going forward. But is this true? I'm sure he's only slightly better than average than great. His weaknesses in defence outweighs his strengths going forward, in my opinion. And for that reason, we need to look at options Tom what do you think I think it's unfair on Cedric um, I think the goals that we concede where Cedric is left against a big centre-back I don't think that's Cedric's fault like, that's ultimately the fault of the centre-backs and it's got be, and the fault of the goalkeeper like who you know it, it's not like Cedric you know if you're Cedric and you've got Glenn Murray who's what 6-3 or something jumping on you like you're not doing that because your job is to mark glenn murray and you know you're you've been tactically outfought by glenn murray your job it shouldn't even get to him you know like fundamentally like the ball shouldn't even be going near it it's because our center backs are scared of their vampires and they're scared of crosses yeah also i think cedric has kind of actually had a fairly decent couple of games I mean his his uh, tackle against Salah in the Liverpool game the last ditch tackle was really good and um, we talked about it earlier that it was kind of his work that led to the Danny Ings winning the penalty against Brighton however despite Cedric's better moments in the last couple of games and probably not being totally at fault for being left at the back post marking the big man I'm, I'm kind of with Chris on this because I do think Cedric on I, I just I'm um, 
I've never been wholly convinced by Cedric. I don't know whether we've been spoiled with right backs, but who was it? Nathaniel Klein was the was the right back before Cedric. I mean, he's not even getting a look in at Liverpool now. I would much rather have Nathaniel Klein in our team now. I think there's another argument, which is that if we're going to play four four two, which we do appear that appears to be the you know what we're going to do now, which is great. I think it's a it's the best format for us. Um, there is an argument that do we need a you know. If we don't need to carry a small, defensively vulnerable right back, but we've already got pretty defensively vulnerable centre backs, which is a terrifying thing to be able to say. Um, do we need to carry that? You know, particularly when you've got uh, Elianusi and Redmond who can switch wings and who will give you such drive forward. Would we not be better off at playing Yoshida maybe at right back? You know, who is more defensively minded? Yeah, and he's not going to burst down the wing, but he also is. You know, he is a better defender, first and foremost. That's what he does. And I wonder, you know, in the days when we, you know, the the brief <laughs> glory period at the start of the season where we played 5-3-2, yeah, Cedric totally makes sense. But for me now, I think there has to be an argument of like, we need to shore up at the back. And Cedric is, you know, has many things, but he's not doing that for us. Yeah, I mean, Yoshida can play there. Bednarek can play there. Um, Stevens could probably play there. Yeah. Um, we've seen McQueen play there. Obviously, he's out on loan at the moment. Um, you know, there, there do seem to be options. And actually, Chris has got a couple of suggestions himself. He, he said he was convinced that Hughes was going to sign Jeff Cameron or some other big lump. And part of me thought this is a good idea to put Cedric under some pressure and have an option in this style for the right-back position. Which I kind of agree with uh, you there, Chris, as well. And he also says, we have Jan Valery. And do we know when he'll be ready for the first team? I've heard great things. And on Football Manager, he is a beast. I mean, it's been a long time since I've played football manager, but, you know, I do have my favourites. And also, most importantly, can you imagine us singing Zootons Valerie for 90s minutes? That is something I would like to see. I'd get that. I mean, if the girl from the Zootons wants to come along and play sax, I'd also be very happy with that, whatever she's doing right now. Yeah, but but on a serious point, though, we spoke loads about Fraser Forster and the lack of serious competition and what maybe that does to footballers you know, very costed, very privileged individuals that footballers are. Maybe the fact that uh, Cedric has no competition for his position is not good for Saints. Um, but having said that, again, I'm not convinced Cedric is the problem here. I think that the ball shouldn't even be getting to near Cedric. Uh, and that, I think, is the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Although mainly when you're making that point, I was also thinking that we might end up with an Amy Winehouse version of Valerie. So I think, yeah. <laughs> but either way, I mean, yeah, it'd be interesting to get him in the squad and, and certainly have that, that uh, song option. Um, also, moving on to right midfield and another one for of our favourites, James Ward-Prowse. In my opinion, the best what James Ward-Prowse uh, ever played was under Ronald on the right wing, pinging the balls to Pelé. Now all we know, uh, now we all know he's not a traditional winger, but he does offer us something different to Redmond and has arguably the best delivery in the league. Surely Austin Ings would benefit from such quality, not just on the set plays. I think David Silva probably want to have a word with you about the idea that Ward Prowse is the best deliverer in the league. I feel sorry, I, you know, that was the game against Brighton was the 77th game for Southampton that James Ward Prowse has come on as a, set, as a substitute. Uh, James Ward-Prowse is, what, 24 years old? He's not old. But also, he's not young. And like, I love, you know, James, there's parts of James Ward-Prowse's game that we love. You know, we love those 
incredible free kicks. You know, he doesn't actually score many attacking free kicks, but there's no doubt, yeah, his crossing is brilliant. But I think there's an argument that Saints' style of football is not, um, you know, is not, is not really set up for Ward Prowse. Um, you know, he doesn't really get time on the ball to, to hurt players. He's not the goal scorer that we, we want him to be. Um, he can't play between, you know, there was an idea at one point he would play between the sort of midfield and the forwards. Doesn't seem to quite be able to do that either. And it's clear, obviously, that we want to play a pace down the wings and he's not blessed with pace. I feel a bit sorry for the guys because obviously people rate him, but they don't rate him enough. They don't trust him enough. And there's an argument that, and this is probably what you say for all of Saints players, they're just too nice. Will Prowse is probably too nice. Well, I mean, Claude Puel kind of famously said that James Will Prowse is the kind of dream boy that your daughter would bring back and that that is it you know he's the nice guy you you can kind of like you trust him with your daughter but you don't trust him with the right side of midfield for saints yeah yeah, like he's he's the guy and you know he's you and like Lamina is the guy or Pogba is the guy that you're you know you should be worried about is that what they say you vernacular yeah something like that anyway Chris thank you very much for that email um if you want to follow Chris from Bristol he's on Twitter at beef b-e-a-v-e underscore d-o-g beef dog um chris i wonder if you get that train that same train that my brother takes down to st mary's on saturdays the little two carriage train that you're all packed into like a japanese train except it doesn't go bullet speed it goes about five miles an hour but uh, enough respect to the west country saints following because i used to be one of you before i moved to london um i got another email uh, as well this one's a little bit shorter um, this one, I think, comes with uh, some, you know, heaping the praise on us. So, Neil Keeping, listened on my entire commute from Southampton to Portsmouth. Didn't get bored. <laughs> Sign of a good podcast. Tom, how do we deal with that? It's the nicest thing anyone said to me all week, so I'll take it. Yeah, um, thanks for that, <laughs> Neil. I think we had another email from um, our friend who runs the antique shop, um, yeah. our old Nick, and he, he, he's kind of like... His kind of compliments come, you know, disguised as uh, insults. But Neil, that, you know, great. I mean, I, I'm pleased that your entire commute from Southampton to Portsmouth is um, that we're keeping you entertained on that. I'm sorry that you have to work in Portsmouth, but, you know, probably someone has to. Um, hopefully Saints can win a few more games to make, you know, working in Portsmouth amongst um, that lot a little bit more enjoyable. Um so he also says, covered all players and all elements of each game nicely. I was at the Leicester game and was impressed by how they played. I even thought Hoybo played well until the sending off. Redmond is a new player, seems to have worked hard on his game and strength in America. Nathan Redmond, he's the the main positive talking point about this season, is it? Well, Redmond and Hoybo probably. Yeah, I think, but I think we all knew that um, Hoiberg would come. Well, Hoiberg was good, wasn't he? Towards the end of last season, he was driving Saints on, whereas Redmond almost the opposite. He'd lost the faith, you know, of, of the fans. I think, you know, putting the goal at Everton, I think people, people lost their way with him. But yeah, again, like Redmond is, you know, fair play to him. It's also he's had a very difficult backstory. I think he's, he had a sister that passed away uh, when she was twelve or something like that. He's, got, you know, he's not had an easy upbringing, um, but he's done brilliantly this season and I I do think like he looks like a player that we've got a couple of players that can really hurt people I think Danny Ings is definitely someone with his movement and and Redmond so yeah like Redmond deserves to be in that team week in week out and I think Mark Hughes obviously has a lot of faith in him and I think again like Redmond just needs something to go in and when it goes in you, you watch he'll hit four or five on the bounce 
Yeah, I don't, I don't even know if he desperately needs a goal because I think he's already doing it for Saints even without the scoring. He's creating dangerous situations time and time again. I was really, really impressed with him um, against Brighton and, and a lot of other fans were, um, you know, basically saying that they, uh, you know, you know that, that wasn't even his best game, you know. Um, obviously, like going away on this summer camp seems to have done absolute wonders. I mean, I noted you, earlier you said that he needs to send Charlie Austin the same summer camp. I seriously, I don't think you're ever going to persuade Charlie Austin to go and spend the summer working on his fitness. But fair play to Roman, it's really worked. Yeah. And actually, maybe this is something we should be looking at our players that are not on international duty and actually putting a bit more pressure on them to say, look, you know, you're earning tens of thousands of pounds. Your career is probably only 10 to 15 years long. Okay, James Will Prowse is probably going to have a 20-year career because he started so young. But, you know, really make the most of it. We need to get someone, uh, I don't know whether it's a different manager or if it's someone in the kind of like management squad to really G up the players and say, look, you're this close to being an international, regular international. Someone like Redmond, if he carries on the way he's playing, will be in the England yeah. squad by the end of the season. Yeah, I completely, I'm 100% with you on this. I think Saints, I think we'll see three Saints players play for England this season. You'll see Bertrand get back in that squad. You'll see Redmond, and I hope you'll see Danny Ings get back in the England squad. But I think as well, if you're playing for Saints, and this was something that was said at the the fans meeting, you know, with Les Reed and, and Kruger and... If you're playing for Saints, you should be an international footballer. Like that's the caliber of player they're looking to sign. As a young player, they want players that will play international football. If you're not playing international football and you're playing for Saints, you're not doing it right. Like, sorry if that might be a little bit over the top, but it's true. Like, they have everything they need, including the scrutiny to play at a top top level. And almost, I think you're exactly right about Nathan Redmond. It's almost like if you're not away with the international team then you better as hell make sure that next time that thing happens, you are away with the international team. And that seems to be what Redmond is set on doing. Yeah, I mean, really, really impressed with him. Um, I think we need to speak about the Wolves game that's coming up this weekend, because otherwise this is going to be an epically long podcast. Um, We've got Saints versus Wolves. Um, I have a connection with Wolverhampton Wanderers. Yeah, so, I mean, I've mentioned my connection with... uh, Southampton previously on the podcast before the fact that my great granddad played for Southampton he also played for Wolverhampton Wanderers and was manager of Wolverhampton Wanderers do you know what his win percentage was as manager of Wolverhampton Wanderers do you want to have a guess Tom 32% higher 51% not quite that high 46 43% no. that, that's still pretty good though I mean he was a, he was a decent he obviously had a decent footballing game we would take that now. Bring him back. I, yeah, unfortunately he died many, many, Aww. many, many years ago. Um, but yeah, so I, I have a little bit of a soft spot for Wolves. Obviously, Saints are my team when I was growing up. Um, you know, I grew up in Bath. Southampton was a bit closer, but most importantly, Southampton had Matthew Letizia. Um And we're going to be playing against Wolves. I've got a lot of time for Wolves and I think Really, out of all the teams that got promoted from the championship last season, Wolves really are the ones which look like they could establish themselves in the Premier League pretty comfortably. Yeah, it's been big. It got real quality. For, you know, like it's interesting. You look at the step up that um, you, you look at the, the sort of step up that some of the uh, 
that promoted teams have, they really struggle. Uh, obviously, um, that's not something Wolves are doing in terms of quality. Uh, yeah, I really, really, really um, rate them. I, I, I fear for Saints this weekend, which is not something I like to say. So, I mean, what what is it about Wolves that you think kind of are going to are going to cause Saints trouble? I mean, is it is it Ruben Nevers? Is is he the biggest fear factor? Is it or is it just the fact that you know they're a team with momentum? They're playing well. They played one well in the Championship. They've kept that momentum in the Premier League. The players that they've signed in the Championship were better than your typical Championship players. They've got players that have played in the Champions League um, before. It's it is a little bit nerve wracking, isn't it? It is, and I think as well they've got what they've clearly got is they've got a great mix of quality players. Exactly, like I say players that play at the highest level, huge amounts of experience uh, in European football. They've got a manager who is very savvy, and also they've not really got a huge amounts to lose. You know, they are the new boys in the league. Um, they're just coming out and playing the football they want to play, and I think they've not had yeah they've had, they've had good results. Not had a mate. Not had, you know, any super uh, you know, incredible amazing results yet but you know if you look at how normally new teams struggle to settle in that league uh wolves have definitely um uh you know not done that so it's gonna be uh i think it's gonna be a tough 90 minutes for the saints yeah i mean reuben nevers is probably the player that i fear the most um Interesting. I just had a little chat with the the guys that run the Wolves podcast. I think it's called like Wolves Seventy Seven, um, and I did ask them, you know, what is perhaps the area where we might be able to kind of like actually damage them. And apparently, apparently the centre of their defence is a little bit slow. And I think potentially this this could be an opportunity for uh, Shane Long. So if we've got a slow defence with Wolves, perhaps Shane Long can cause a little bit of trouble. And the guys from their podcast also said that if they're winning in the 70th minute, they don't really have the strength and depth to bring on players to shore things up. Um, so on the Wolves podcast, they were interested in Romay. That's a player that they actually feared, which was quite interesting to hear. Um, and I said they probably wouldn't be seeing him until about the 70th minute if we're in the lead. And... Um, but but they said that they they don't really have the the strength and depth to do that. Having said that, though, they made nine changes for their uh, league cup game, so they are going to be playing basically their their Premier League side, and it will be roughly the same side. Um, but there could there could be some hope, some glimmer of hope, if we can get some fast runs into the box. Yeah, and and again, I think it's something we've we've spoken about before is maybe Saints are better away from home. Yeah, away from the negative mindset of St. Mary's away from, uh, you know, which I think the, the players have, uh, maybe, you know, away fans are less quick to get on the team's back. That's not a criticism of home fans. It's just generally in my experience, that seems to be that way. Yeah. You never know. And I think if they've got a slow center back and we've got Danny Ings and we've got Nathan Redmond and we've got Shane Long, then we can punish them. And it's the kind of game you can kind of see saints, you know, sort of quietly, optimistic about it you're feeling quietly optimistic yeah. can we have a prediction from you Tom 2-1 Saints Danny Ng, Shane Long you know what the prediction I gave the Wolves podcast guys <laughs> no 2-1 Wolves with Saints oh. taking the lead 1-0 and then throwing it all away 
I, I need saints to show me a bit of love and a bit of resilience, Tom. I've, I've lost my belief. I've become weak in my love for saints. I mean, I, I don't know what's happened. Um, what, what are your best memories of saints versus wolves? It's been a little while since we've last played them. There's one, isn't there, that stands out. And uh, it's the, which, and also it's not really a professional thing to do, John. Fantastic interview with Klaus Lundervon. And Klaus, if you're listening, it was an inspirational listen. Uh, brilliant. And if anyone hasn't listened to the, se- the session with Klaus, uh, please do. He was, comes across brilliantly. But it has to be Klaus's goal, isn't it? The first goal for Saints. Yeah, I mean, Klaus scoring at Molyneux. I mean, who, who was there? Write in, tell us about it. Saintssepodcast at gmail.com. What, what did it feel like? Um, probably a game that I remember which, which I actually went to was, um, I think it was the quarterfinal of the FA Cup when we got to the final was against Wolves and we had them home. Yeah, when, when we got to the final against Arsenal. Um, I'm pretty sure we had them at home in the quarterfinals. And I remember um, meeting a few of the Wolves fans on the train uh, down to Southampton. And it's, yeah, it's a pretty good performance. It's a pretty convincing performance. And obviously, because it's part of that great run, I remember that pretty, pretty fondly. Um, I do think we've got one other thing to talk about on the podcast, haven't we, uh, Tom, before we go? And it's, uh, it's uh, about a friend of yours and his boy called Teddy. Yeah, absolutely. If anyone is free uh, this Friday coming, that's Friday the 28th of September, um, in Union Street and SC1 at Marlborough Sports, um, so sort of down sort of London Bridge, Borough sort of way. Uh, good friend of mine, uh, Jamie, his little boy Teddy, um, has, uh, has has cancer and um, there is a, a day sort of from 12 till 7. It's going to be a sports day with sort of football, volleyball and netball. Um all the proceeds are going to play for Teddy's uh, treatment. We're hoping to get Teddy off to the US uh, for some uh, some really innovative, some really uh, some some treatment. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a ten pound donation on a day. It should be a really fun day. Um, I'll be going down there. I you know I would anyone who is in and around um, the London Bridge Borough area, if you're a Saints fan. Uh, come down, spend ten pounds, and uh, you know maybe make a difference to to what is a very 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 worthy cause. And um, if, if people are not going to be in South London on Friday, is there like a Just Giving page where they can go to and give a donation or anything like that, Tom? If you go to uh, if you go to there's a fiveaside.org, which is five uh, the number five, and then a side.org slash Teddy's. Uh, dash big dash match um you'll see details on there but um yeah it's a really really worthy cause for a great family um so yeah if you can spare the time just you know come down and 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 make a difference absolutely get on that saints fans i know that you're all a really good bunch um quite quite a lot of you um yeah we'll put it out on twitter as well so that you can you can follow the links on that um I know quite a few of you uh, sponsored me when I did uh, some fundraising um, in the summertime. So I know that there's some some good, lovely people out there. And if you're looking for a cause to get behind, that is an absolutely fantastic one to do so. Um, anyway, I think we're kind of coming to the end of the podcast now, Tom. Um, as always, if you want to get in contact with the Saints FC podcast and we do absolutely love hearing from you we'll probably read out your email on the show or discuss the points you bring up so do send us an email at saintsfcpodcast at gmail.com or find us on twitter at saintsfc 
podcast or at Saints FC pod. I can't remember now. At Saints FC podcast. I said it so many times I've kind of lost lost track of where I am. Um, fingers crossed for a positive result at the weekend. Let's get this season back on track. Um, anyway, it's bye-bye from me. It's goodbye from me. Cheerio.